welcome to The Being Leader. I'm Annabel Graham. Welcome to this episode of The Being Leader, the podcast that discusses how we need to show up and be as leaders, reflecting on what impacts our behaviours, our relationships and our outcomes, and allows us to focus more on our approach to leading ourselves, our teams and our organisations. Today, I'm joined by author, trainer and coach, Joss Burton. Joss works with organisations, teams and individuals to improve their performance through training and coaching and is the author of the self-development book, Be Useful, which was shortlisted for the Business Book Awards in 2019. Joss, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us on The Being Leader. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this, Annabelle. Fabulous. So I always like the listeners to hear a little bit more about people who come on um, and really what led guests to get to where they are now. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the world of training and coaching and more to the point, authoring. <laughs> OK, well, thank you for that. Um, I suppose my interest in people development goes back over 30 years. I uh, was very fortunate to get uh, a role way back in an earlier life where it involved uh, training and developing people. Um, i had done a, a course in adult education way back in the 80s. Um, and when my boss found out about this, he was very keen to make use of this interest I had and said, right, would you come up with some sessions that we could do for our people? And one thing kind of led to another. You kind of build a bit of a name for yourself. And people kept asking me to do more of that stuff. Um, so then I got a role as a trainer or a training manager uh, in a corporate world. Um, that was in the late 90s. And I spent about 10 years doing that. And then roughly 10 years ago, so I kind of work in decades, uh, seems to be the easiest way for me. Um, I decided to set up on my own and took the plunge uh, and, and we met not long after that really it's about eight, eight years ago we've, we've known each other um, and really what I've always looked for is those opportunities where I can spend more time um, working with people to help them develop their skills because the biggest kick I get I suppose whether it's doing training sessions or coaching is seeing how other people develop uh, and that led then on to the idea of the book. Um, so in, in a nutshell, a question that I was asked many years ago, again, um, I bumped into one of my old school teachers roughly about 10 years after leaving school. And you know how you have that slightly embarrassed uh, feeling you walk up to teacher and they recognise you? Yeah, you've um, no clue who they are. <laughs> well, no, I knew him very well. I just didn't think he'd remember me. Um, and the fact that he did, I wasn't sure that was a good thing or not. Um, <laughs> But I was expecting him to come up and say, how are you? What are you doing? And he didn't. He said the first question he asked me was, is the world making good use of you? Um, and that question kind of stuck in my head. I found it difficult to answer it at the time. Um, and so throughout my career now, uh, well, even years ago, I, I would ask myself that question. Is the world making good use of me? Am I doing something where I'm benefiting others through the activity that I do? Am I providing uh, a service that is going to make a difference ultimately so then when I got the opportunity a couple of years ago to, to do a book I was approaching 60 and I wanted to do something by my 60th birthday <laughs> um, and I uh, bumped into somebody who posed this question to me and straight away I knew exactly what I wanted to write about there was no hesitation I wanted to look at this question is the world making good use of you and I wanted to find a way that over the 30 years in the meantime that I've been working, uh, what that could possibly mean. So the book kind of takes that apart, really, to some extent. Um, 
and yeah, so that's gets me up to where we are today, basically. Excellent. Yeah, and I remember when you were starting on that book journey, you rang me up. And actually, I was in the same room I am now, except I was looking out the window rather than looking at a blind. And uh, you said, oh, is, is the world, so is the world making good use of you? And, and I equally, I think, struggled with how I was going to answer <laughs> that question. And sort of in my head went, well, no, in some places it's really annoying me. So, Because actually, it's a really great question to ask. Um, and it sort of links to that. I mean, in the coaching world, and I do this when I'm supervising with coaches, um, and it's something we talk a lot about a lot in coach supervision about, you know, when, are you being useful to the client or helpful? Because actually helpful is disabling, it's disempowering. And we were ta- I was talking about it on a leadership program only yesterday. So it's get that, that whole theory thing around being useful is such a good, good yeah, one. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I've enjoyed, I think what's happened, Annabelle is through doing the book and, and the kind of work that both of us do is that we're able to have these types of conversations with people in a way that actually is quite meaningful you know it's not just an empty vacuous you know a lot of our industry is talking in cliches there's a lot of jargon around people development as you know but once you ask these types yeah. of questions of your people whether it's in a group or or individually it does make people think and that for me is is, is important you know it gives it some value there and a little bit of depth to that conversation um, so no, thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate that. Absolutely. So when you think about, you know, how you work with with leaders, because as you said, you know, we work in the in in the people development world, but we don't quite work in it in the same way. So tell me about how, where your focus sits. How do you tend to approach what you do? Well, I, I gave this some thought because generally I'm just really nosy. You know, um, <laughs> and, and I find that I find Brilliant. that being curious about people and what they do and why they do it and their thought processes that leads you into all interesting places. Because the, the main thing for me as a coach is asking lots of questions, listening, listen, 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 uh, and then don't be afraid to push back and challenge and um, get get people to organise their thinking a little bit and 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 do that. So it's really just being a very nosy person. I think, and genuinely interested in, in what other people are doing and how and why they do. And then also when they come up with the little things that are bothering them, the things that aren't going as well as, as, as they want them to, and you just start taking that apart a little bit. Do you know what? The, the, the comment I've had most often, Annabelle, mm. um, from people I've done coaching with in particular, um, is so, so somebody said this some years ago, and it's been repeated lots of times, is that the, the way you... I like to work is it kind of holding a mirror up to somebody uh, and I've not thought of this when I first started getting into coaching um, but one chap in particular many years ago now um, said it's, it's like you hold a mirror up and I get a chance to see myself in a way that I don't normally see myself um, and I thought that I, I took that as a compliment and it's something I've kind of worked on over the years now is to reflect back what the other person's thoughts are of their concerns but let me just tell you, um, I don't know if you saw recently on social media, there was a, a bit of a debate about coaching. And this has been going on for donkey's years. I mean, this, this lady was getting a bit fed up with the direct versus indirect coaching. Yeah, you, you'll, you'll be aware of the debate, I'm sure. And some people are very Oh, yeah, passionate. I think I waded in on it as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what she was saying was, why don't we look at a third way of this, which is it's, it's a conversation between two people 
And, and if it's a, a, a true conversation, then it becomes a dialogue, the word dire meaning two ways. Um, and if both, both parties want to achieve the same thing, you're know, looking at a way to resolve something or improve or develop something, then really whether it's direct or indirect, whether you use questions, whatever you do, if it helps that person generate something meaningful, that it's a collaborative conversation, a, um, a, a true piece of co-creating together, then really whatever process you want to label it, uh, I don't really matter. I don't think I've been uh, too precious about that, to be honest. You just want to have a genuine conversation with someone that helps to overcome something or helps improve or develop something. Yeah. And I think it's, it is a really interesting one. I mean, obviously, I, the last couple of weeks, I've been introducing that whole thing around coaching with um, about 40 leaders and getting them to think around it. And they always have it on this, well, it's teaching you a skill and it's me talking. And you sort of just, blow their little minds and go no it's not that it's a lot more indirect and it sort of works a spectrum for where you sit um and but in some ways there's that necessity i think especially with leaders sometimes to get them that get that understanding that it can be in it can be non-direct as well because they don't do what you've just said you love to do which is be nosy and, and, and ask loads of questions they don't ask enough of them because we end up being you know we're fantastic tellers because our parents have role modeled it beautifully with us and so have our teachers and we're great at telling everybody else our opinion but absolutely rubbish at being super curious so yeah. you know that piece about trying to get leaders to just go just ask a few more questions you know dig into it and use open you know it's that thing about open questions yeah. they think they're asking great questions but they're asking closed or leading questions yeah. uh, and especially if it's a senior person to a more junior person I think, you know, like you and I, when we're working with you know, business leaders, sometimes they're, they're wiser, cleverer, smarter than me. They've earned more money than me. They have more responsibility than me. But I, I still the one that poses the question that makes them think of something they haven't thought of before or in a way that they haven't thought of. Before. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think they want to invest in somebody who's a coach. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a senior authority. I'm, I'm not. But, but I know that I can stop people break some of those habits they get into and make them think about things just a little bit differently. Yeah. And that whole mirror analogy is a really great one around self-awareness of getting people to actually go, so what could I have done differently? And actually how do other people now perceive me? What's that perspective? Which I think is, is the real usefulness we bring, especially the more senior people become because they don't have that conversation space. Exactly right. Yes, you know, exactly. One of my one of my clients, one of their their team members, calls me their conscience. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see them very often, but they went basically you're their conscience because I'm I'm the person who has the conversations that nobody else has because actually it's not appropriate to have them within the business. And actually, in those, it's more of a I would call a thinking partnership. So in some mm. ways, what you said because at that at that level, there is a degree of input needed as well and it's not as in please go away and do this that doesn't exist at all it's as in well here let me offer you that perspective and you can accept or reject it depending on what you want to do with it I'm, I'm really not in the nicest way I don't care that isn't my role to mind the choice that you make because I'm not in your shoes and not in your position I care that you think you've made the right choice but which it is is not is, is irrelevant to me, mm -hmm. you know, because it's not my decision to make. 
but you're what you're doing is getting them to think through that decision in a way which then becomes a bit more purposeful um and has some sort of meaning to it for them absolutely so We've had some conversations around another topic which ends up coming up very often in those coaching conversations. You know, you go in and somebody, I, I, I always find it interesting, I think, when people go, oh, well, I, I said I wanted to work in, in the business and I wanted to just have conversations about how I am as a, as a leader or, or how I influence or how I work strategically or whatever it may be. And then it always comes down to work-life balance and the fact we're stressed and we've got too much on. And at the moment, it's teams fatigue you know it's a worry when you do a, a whole day online workshop give people two half hour breaks and 45 minutes and they've had more breaks than normal really how does that work so it's this thing around busyness yes which struck up one of our conversations so why why did busyness become a thing for you because it, it not as in doing but as in thinking about it yeah no I, you're absolutely right we have we have mentioned this a few times i think it goes back again to one of those lessons. When, when I first became a manager, which again is just, just over 30 years ago, um, I, I was leading a small team of, of guys in a factory. I was their supervisor, we called it at the time. Um, and I remember my boss saying to me as we started out, he said, don't mistake motion for action. Yeah, you know, it's one of those kind of little glib sayings that people roll off the tongue every now and again. But it made me think, you know, we had a lot of people rushing around looking busy because by looking busy, they wouldn't get extra jobs to do or that um, they were kind of felt that if they were busy, that uh, we wouldn't bother them uh, and that somehow they were important because of their busyness. So I remember being aware of this then and thinking what that actually means, um, how we value ourselves when we're doing lots when we've got a lot on and we think that we're more important than somebody who hasn't got as much on or has got time to do so um and i think what's happened is over the years like you say you know we talk to people who then big this up you know i just haven't got time for this. i'm on it and and it can lead to as you call it you know workaholics people brag about this there's this thing on social media about people humble bragging about how busy they are and that they've become total workaholics and I think, you know, if that was any other form of addiction, then we'd really challenge it. If, if you were that addicted to drugs or alcohol or uh, whatever your choice is, gambling, then it's, it becomes a problem. Uh, and we're afraid to say that when it's when people talk about it, about work. Oh, I'm doing ever such long hours. I take it home with me and I'm doing it at the weekends as well. Great. And how's that affecting your other aspects of your life? Oh, it's crap. You know, things with family, I don't see them. I can't do anything on relationships are breaking down and they're not seeing the connection somehow and as you say this is it's a bit of a cliche that work-life balance statement because work is an important part of life it's not a separate thing so I think it's helping people to talk about that as you say more meaningfully what, what that is but I think there's a long history to this and you know I, I did that article that got taken by training zone which was kind of a bit bizarre um, but, but tell me about it. So tell us about what you, what you found in that. <laughs> well, I did a bit of digging around and a bit of a research. Because over the years, it's something that I, I have been on and off with. I read a book some years ago. Now, this, this I don't know if you've heard of it, The, the Protestant Work Ethic and, and the Spirit of Capitalism by Max Weber. This is over 100 years ago, this chap wrote this book. Okay. okay? Uh -huh. um, 1904, 1905, something like this. 
going back to early Calvinism, when uh, as the Protestant church came uh, established, they were, they were talking about the value of work, the value of labour. And of course, this is a nice way of keeping the workers happy because they're doing something valuable while I'm sitting at home taking all the profits from you. Um, and the workers it, would be on a six day week at that point when it was written. As absolutely. Well. Yeah. Yes. So you got Sunday off, but that was only that had only come in recently, if my memory serves. That was mid 1850s. I, I mean, well, this this the reason for this, Annabelle, I think you're right, is it goes back to then when the Industrial Revolution yeah. really accelerated everything. So the idea of work became not just there's a value in work. If you think of the, the, the split between craftspeople, uh, there's a super book that my son gave me last year called The Craftsman, which is appreciating the quality of work. But with mass, with the industrialization and mass production creeping up, people start to think rather in terms of quantity of work. You know, the more I do, the more successful I must be. I'm doing lots and lots of things as opposed to someone who's doing a few things, but doing them really well. And we started to value quantity over quality in a lot of aspects of our lives. Uh, and I think with the 20th century in particular, with industrialization becoming a global thing uh, on, a, on a huge scale, and how this has affected us, I think, psychologically, it's become so ingrained in us now that we talk about productivity as if it's the be-all and end-all. And... Um, when Simon Sinek put this post on at the beginning of the lockdown, I don't know if you remember it, um, he put this post on saying, why are we prioritising productivity at a time like this? And it made me think, well, it's not just now, but <laughs> uh, why at all? <laughs> OK, during the pandemic, should we be prioritising getting loads of work done when there's people suffering, terrible tragedies happening around the world and, and we're concerned yeah there were articles being published saying how to be super productive during the lockdown i'm thinking no <laughs> this can't be right why why are we so focused on that as a as a priority rather than say our well-being or doing work well is that the same thing um being well and doing well <laughs> they're, they're probably connected because we're going to talk about doing and being aren't we um so, yes, it became a bit of a, a, a bee under my bonnet, I suppose. And I think I've become more conscious lately, especially with the lockdown happening, um, about having conversations with people where we look at revaluing the, the things that we're doing, the work and who we are and why we're doing this, so that we talk more of the quality of it than just the sheer quantity of it. Mm. Yeah, and you know, you kicked my brain off in a direction when you were talking about that, um, which I hadn't hadn't drawn a link. So, so thank you for bringing that book up. It sounds fascinating because <laughs> I do believe we follow trends. You know, I've I've got a, a huge belief. If you look at what's going on currently in society, sort of like in the the current decade, there's a huge mirror back into the um, nineteen. 10s into early 1920s and actually if we extrapolate the amount of change that happened by 1930 and mirror that through now because the themes are the same it's just the context is different you know so we have mass migration technological rise changing women's role in the workplace that's all like 1920 to 23 that's right it is <laughs> but it's still relevant now but in a different context so actually by the the bit that really gets on and my and my goal which i think links into where my brain got kicked um 
is this piece that so how is the world of work going to be different now that it's virtual and you just want to go oh god it's so much bigger than that when you get a grip you know it's we're not we can't actually even imagine what it's going to be like in 10 years time this is just the tip of the iceberg and we need to look so much wider because it's not even going to be what we think it is but the bit that that sort of triggered me when you were saying that was this piece around productivity and piecework and I wonder if some ways that goes back to the tailorist attitude that we have you know around piecework and measurement and output and that actually if you think yes industrial revolution but if you think about a lot of the working practices that we have in, in the workplace today actually are firmly grounded in post 50s industrialization you know 50s through to 80s when pcs were like these things that took rooms up in offices (laughs) do you remember the size of the first one that you had at work it was just huge it was this hulking thing that you had to put a floppy disk in and pray to god it worked that was just in in my world to get the tills to to, uh, switch on in the morning (laughs) but you know that there was this piece everything was around about what you produce yes so we're measuring output and we still value output so if we look at what we do and we measure that then in terms of well how many meetings have i got and how much am i you know how many pieces of work am i doing when we move that into the virtual and into the technology age and actually more into the information age and into that virtual arena then how do I know what you're doing? So it's that measure over output versus outcome. And, I've, you know, I've just got off doing a session on goals and how do you measure a process goal? How do you measure behaviour? Especially when you don't work with the person because you can't see them because you only meet them once a week over teams. And I really think people struggle with that. It, it is. That's why we have the problem because... Rather than take a little bit longer to look at qualitative measures, the easier thing to measure is quantitative measures. So we default into that space, unfortunately. Whereas if we took a little bit longer and spent a bit more quality time with the people involved to talk about their behaviour, for example, and what that actually means to us, and how we're going to know when it's doing what we want it to do rather than working against us. Uh, and we don't, you know, unfortunately. But the, Again, that's why you and I spend a lot of time in the coaching space, because coaching is where you can have those conversations and you can challenge people's behaviour. Because what we're doing is talking about the thinking that goes behind that behaviour, their feelings, their opinions, their their judgments that are impacting on the behaviour that then impacts on ultimately on their performance. Um, It takes time and and we're very passionate about it. We're, We're good at it. So, um, but then not everybody can take that time and that effort and that work with them. So they default to the, the measuring of the quantitative stuff. Uh, and, and there's a problem there, I think. So when you're, when you're working with leaders or with organisations, how do you, what are the common issues that you see? How is that impacting people in a really tangible level? Well, I think, you know, I think we've, we've talked about this, this, workaholics thing and people working long hours I I think you know this again sounds very cliched and I apologize but I always think of that Lincoln quote about um yeah the the versus the working smarter rather than versus working harder I'm not a huge fan of hard work I think the the whole thing behind hard work leads to 
workaholics. Whereas if we're working a bit smarter, and what Lincoln said, you remember, was uh, if I've got eight hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend five hours sharpening the axe. Well, if you think about that, the sharpening the axe bit is the smart work. Chopping down a tree is hard work. Okay, I don't know if you've ever done it, but if you have to pick up an axe and do it manually, it's bloody hard work. No, but I haven't, you... but my other half work as a country <laughs> ranger and does felling. There you are. So if he spends time sharpening the axe, making sure that the tools he's using are as sharp as they can be, then the effort is less. So spend more time finding out what's the smart work we do that enables the hard work to be managed more effectively. I'm not saying you can achieve stuff without doing hard work. You can't. But you can manage your hard work better so it doesn't take over. Otherwise, you just spend eight hours slogging away with a blunt axe and not getting anywhere. And I think that ethos needs to go back into the workplace. I think, okay, the cliche about smart working smarter, not harder. But there's something in it, Annabelle, um, and what we do, don't we, is get people to look at where are those little sticking points where you can sharpen the saw a bit and make the other tasks you're doing easier and more effective uh, in the longer term. So I think that's the kind of quality of conversation I want to be able to have with people. Mm. Yeah, and I... I know when I sit down with with people and this conversation comes up and one of the initial questions I usually ask when I'm especially when I'm starting coaching I I ask them you know so what is what is what's it like when you're having your best day what does a great day look like and it's it is really interesting because most of the time you get the, oh, well, I've had a great meeting and I've had a really successful conversation. And you do get some really nice pieces around, you know, those interactions and those relationships. But it's around stuff. And when I then go, OK, so so how do you set up that great day? So what have you done when you got out of bed? Have you had enough sleep? Did you have breakfast? You know, did you travel into the office? Did you not travel into the office? Did you get a chance to do any exercise? And they suddenly go, oh, and you, well, that <laughs> impacts on it all, you know, because I know I'm much happier, you know, so so this morning I have been on and off calls most of the day, you know, <laughs> as I joked to the dog walker, I'll glue my backside to a seat. But equally, I got half an hour walking the dogs. And then because she's had them for an hour, I went to go for a run. So I've had a lovely hour outside, set the day up, had breakfast. Lunch was a bit rushed, but it was managed. You know, if you don't feed me, I'm a ratty person to work with. <laughs> but people don't see this because we get caught up in the doing and then don't recognise that actually how people experience us because of busy is not a great version of ourselves because we haven't done all of that other stuff. I think you and I have both had this conversation about the being versus doing thing. Mm. Um, and the more I've thought about it, Annabelle, is that um, I, I think there's a lot in this, that the being leader stuff that you're talking about. I think when we get people to stop what they're doing for a bit and think about what's going on behind that, the, the why they're doing it. So, you know, this what, what's the purpose and, and reconnecting with that. But then there's also the who are you? Um not just in terms of your function. You know, if, if, if you define yourself by what you do, you're going to miss out on the being side of it. If you define yourself on what you stand for, you know, what's your purpose, what are your values, what's important to you in life uh, and in work, 
and work out where you're coming from, you can deliver something much more powerfully, much more with much more engagement. Um, whereas if you're wrapped up in the doing all the time, you kind of miss out on, on that stuff. And I think um, I think there's something about, you know, we talk a lot about personal branding, don't we, in our work? Uh, and it's become a bit of a cliche again. But I like it in, in old-fashioned money. We used to talk about your reputation. What do you want to be known for? Um, and, I, you know, yes, you do want to be known for getting things done because that's what, what will make things happen. But it's the way you go about that that's probably even more important. And I want to be remembered for someone who cared, who showed an interest in stuff, who um, you know, wanted to make things better um, rather than just doing more of it. Yeah. Um, so I think if you're conscious of the, the being side of, of why you're in this, who you are and what you stand for in life, then you can bring a whole lot more to the doings that, that need to be done. <laughs> And I think it's really interesting when you say that piece around personal brand, because you're right, it's just it's just a, a posh word for reputation. Um, <laughs> but when sometimes in sessions, I end up doing values and personal brand in the same workshop. And it's really interesting when you say to people, um, in fact, I was doing it only yesterday. What, you know, if I asked people what you wanted people to say about you when you weren't in the room, interesting the words they use that they want people to describe them are exactly pretty much exactly the same as their values so there's a real synergy around how I want to be described to what's important to me and and it's really quite interesting and it, it, it's not identical but it's consistent um, which I think is a really interesting thing that people get what's important and they do understand it but they get caught up in whatever the next report has to say or whatever the next customer demand, customer demand is or whatever the boss wants me to do next or whatever I feel I should do because I don't want to ask my team because I might I, it, they're very busy yeah but to, <laughs> not your job to do that why are you doing yeah. it <laughs> so that real struggle with delegation as well is that we take on too much because we we, we don't want to ask either for help or put upon people. Yes. So when you're working with people, what type of areas do you ask, do you highlight with them? So that to sort of raise that awareness about what they can tangibly start doing in some ways to dial back that busyness and, and take a more quality versus quantity approach. Well, I suppose, um, I mean, this is the, the thing that I explored in the book, I suppose, and it comes down to three, three steps, really. Um, the first step is being very clear on what you think you stand for and what you have to offer. I call it your offer, but um, you can call it whatever you like. It's really, why do you want to do what you do from your perspective? So there's being clear on what you provide or do. What service, as a leader, what service do you provide? The second bit is being very clear on who values that, who benefits from it, who takes care about that, um, who appreciates what it is you're doing. So uh, I don't remember, but when we started with the book idea, um, uh, I wanted to describe what, you know, what is being useful. And I've got to be very, draw a distinction very early on in the book between being useful and being used. Yes. Okay. So most people intuitively know when they're being used. 
they they know the instinctive deep down that I've done something that I thought was helping or being useful or, or providing a service, whatever, but the other party didn't value it at all. They just kind of ignored it or went away. And then I feel like I've been used. So it's important that you know who will value your contributions, your, your efforts, your, the services you provide. So step one is knowing what it is you offer. Step two is knowing who values this. And step three is bringing the other two steps together. How do we engage with those parties? What do we have to do to make sure that um, we work well with the other, the, 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 our audience, if you like, whether that's your team, whether that's your clients, whether that's various stakeholders that you're working with? How do you engage with them in order to build a relationship where both parties at the end of the day get something of value out of this? You provide the service, but other people appreciate that service. And that way, I, I, I don't know if I told you this story that's in my book about, um, I was having this conversation with my dad, who, bless him, is now 87 years old. Um, he worked as a physiotherapist for many years with the yeah, yeah. Uh, National Health Service. And um, I was talking to him about being useful when I was writing the book. And um, as a child growing up, I remember my dad, wherever because he worked in the same hospital for 40 years, Wherever we went in Nottingham, pretty much guaranteed, we would bump into one of his ex-patients. Everybody so, would know him. <laughs> exactly right. And he, he would see somebody walking towards him with a strange limp or a bit of a funny gait. And they'd come to him, hi, John, do you remember me? You know, and I just thought um, my dad cured everybody. You know, wherever we went, people would say, your dad's wonderful. Because of him, I can now walk or lift or, or bend or whatever after these accidents they have. And when I was writing the book, I said to dad, I remember this story and uh, talked to him about it. And he said, well, at that time, we were seeing probably about 100 people a week came through the hospital needing physiotherapy, because it was a heavily industrialised area, Nottingham factories and, and uh, mines and so on. Um, and he said, we probably would help one in 10 of those people coming through. We could probably work with that. So that means 90% of the people that passed through there didn't make any gain at all. And this got me thinking, you, you can't, whatever service you do, you can't help everyone. And once you admit that to yourself, whether you're a, a leader, whether you're a, a, a seller of services, whatever it is you're doing, uh, once you realise that, then you've got to be a lot more selective about who you want to work with. Because you're only going to be able to be useful to a certain type of audience that values what you do. And values the way you work you know I, i'm not a great coach for everybody not everybody gets me or, or wants to work with me and that's fine you know i can refer them on to you or somebody who's with a different technique uh, but what i will do is say to people up front this is how we work and if this is going to work for you then let's do it if it's not great you know uh, it's better for me because i don't want to do bad work i want to do work that i'm remembered well for and I want you to go on and be, you know, be successful and achieve the things you want to achieve. Um, so I think recognising where you can do good value work is important. So know what it is you have to offer, know who benefits from that, and then find ways of bringing those two things together e effectively. Yeah. Nice. So that is about, it's getting people, getting leaders to really think about, you know, what is my purpose and what is my role yeah. here? And be really clear on that. And not role as in doing, role as in what am I looking to achieve? What do I stand for? Yeah, what do I make happen? Yes, what do I care um, about? And that not necessarily isn't tied up in the title. Exactly, yes. 
Um, because I think I think leaders, I think we can really get we can believe our role title is who we are. <laughs> yes. So I'll give you an example. So when I, I know when in my previous life I used to be a area sales manager in, as for retail. Um, and if I've got any of my ex-retail colleagues now, confession, I really don't give a shit about sales. Um, I really couldn't care about the sales figures, bonuses don't bother me. You can dangle one at me, it's not going to make me sell anymore because it just doesn't work. Um, which is probably, I've probably got a few bosses going, yeah, no, we've gathered that, missus, you really... I mean, to be fair, I wasn't shabby by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I had decent like for like sales, but genuinely it doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. I couldn't give a damn about it. I, a bit like you, um, the person who likes developing. But this meant there was a real juxtaposition between what I did and um, what people wanted of me. So I would get the problem regions to go and fix. So they'd go, oh, parachute her in. And, it, and what they actually want me as a role to do, you know, great area or regional manager in retail is you go and stick a sticking plaster on it. And in two months time, I want to see the sales figures rocket through the roof because then I know something different's happening. But that doesn't work for me because I went through a phase of every year I had a different region. So if I do that, that's, that literally is like sticking a sticking plaster on a wound. So I go away 12 months later and the sales will go down the tubes again. And then that's absolutely pointless. You know, there's long, no longevity on it. So I used to always need a boss who could cover my back because I would do, I would, by the end of the year, it would be fine. But I needed nine to 12 months to make it happen because I deal with the behaviours. I would dig you in. You want to make it sustainable, don't you? Exactly. So I would look at who's maybe not working well, who is working well, who, who do I need to move around, who needs to be promoted, who do I need to have a conversation with and go, you're not going about that the right way. And what behaviours do I need to put in and what skills do I need to develop? So I used to measure my output of success by how many people I promoted each year. That was my measure of whether I'd had a good year was had I made more team leaders or more store managers or if I'd made another area manager. Brilliant. I'd cloned myself. Absolutely. Yeah. So that the value to me was different. And that was always a interesting paradox that had to be balanced. <laughs> but that yeah. is getting people to divorce. What are you there for? What's your purpose? What's your role versus actually what does the business want you to do and that yeah. can be a real challenge for people to get their heads around no you're absolutely right and i think that that's probably one of the most rewarding aspects of what we do isn't it is hmm. we're able to have those kind of conversations with people and challenge that thinking a little bit uh, just because that's your job description let's look at what's behind that that will actually deliver what you need to deliver but in the way that's going to be as you say sustainable rewarding and meaningful at the end of the day absolutely so if you're thinking about, you know, if we've got people listening who are thinking about, okay, so I get that piece, I get those three steps, which are really, really great, really clear, you know, what is my offer? Who's going to value it? So who's going to benefit from what I'm doing? And then how do I engage with them to be able to make that happen? That I can yeah. get my head around. But I've still got a diary that's a bit shit. <laughs> <laughs> back-to-back meetings and I'm still busy now I've just got more stuff to think about you know in that real practical sense <clears throat> what what are those tips and ideas that you give to people to think about how can I dial some of that back how can I make my life a bit easier I think there's a simple principle here for me uh, that if people are complaining about workload so you know I'm, I'm so busy I've got so much on there then I think behind that there's a lack of clarity somewhere um, if you're not 
clear on what actually is going to deliver what it is you want to deliver, then you'll just try and do a bit of everything. Whatever comes your way, you just say yes to, you stick it on the to-do list, you keep on it. If you're really clear on what you're trying to achieve, on where you're trying to go with this, you say no to much more stuff. And, and the answer is being able to say no to things. If you just put everything on your to-do list and say yes to it all, I mean, yeah, sometimes it's great to say yes to things you haven't done before, and so you should. But not every time, you know the cliche, every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something. If you're very clear on what's going to help you get closer to your end goal, uh, I don't know if I, I told you this story, but it made a profound effect on me some years ago. I was traveling on a train coming down from Newcastle late one evening. I think it was at the end of the week. I can't remember exactly. Uh, and you know how you're <clears throat> working on your laptops on the train. This lady sitting opposite me, she's working on that. We've got eye contact at the time. And this is, this is over 20 years ago now. So I said to the lady, what, what are you working on? Uh, we, it was late. We were tired. We were just chatting. Okay, so she was writing a book about exit strategies. And the idea behind this is, where do you want to finish up in your working life? What do you want the end of your working career to look like? Uh, and this had quite a profound effect on me. I thought that was two decades away yet, and uh, it wasn't something I'd given much thought to. But it wasn't until I went home, chatted with my wife over the weekend. I said, you know, I don't want to finish my working life in, in, in a big corporation, getting my gold watch at my 65th birthday, or whatever it is, and then just going from that to, to doing nothing. Uh, and once I realized that what, what I wanted that end game to look like, you then work backwards from there to where you are now. What needs to happen in the next year, five years, 10 years, 20 years to get you closer to that end? And all of a sudden I started saying no to things. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. That's not going to get me anywhere near where I want to be. Um, and saying yes to opportunities that are going to take you in that direction. And I knew I wanted to ultimately leave the corporate world. I loved what I was doing, and I worked with some fantastic people. I owe them a huge debt, um, but I didn't want to stay there till, till the clock ran out. So I took the plunge and left a few years later, once I got myself in a position where I could. And then it's about, as you know, setting up in work yourself uh, and taking on the kind of work and projects, you, the people you want to work with, that are going to enable you to get closer to that. So I honestly think what, what I do is I spend time with people, to answer your question, Annabelle, um, helping them to clarify their longer-term goals. And a lot of people don't think about that. They have short-term goals, or maybe they set an appraisal for this time next year, and then they go the year after that, and then next year they do the one for the year after that. And it's like this rolling exercise. Rather than saying, let's go really long-term, fire that rocket out as far as you can read, try and visualise what it's going to be like, then work backwards from there. And then you just, once that starts to get a bit of clarity, um, this is all about clarity. This problem with overloading and work mode is not being able to say no to stuff. I love that. I think there's, I think there's something else about it for me. So yes, there's the clarity. And yes, there's the absolutely saying no. There's then the piece about recognizing that your time has equal, if not more value than somebody else's. So the fact that, so that we don't value our time for ourselves. So I've got a huge belief um, from a diary management point of view and it, and it works, I'd say 90% of the time, you know, I will, I, will, I will hold myself up and say, I have succumbed to a bit of busyness because I said to, yes to too many of the nice things that actually did help get towards the goal, but I've now screwed myself for about six weeks. 
So I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And I know I'm sitting, sitting working through that period going, I am not happy about this. This is not fun, busy, <laughs> but it's necessity and it's short terms. But the thing I'm a firm believer in is that actually we don't plan our whole 100% of our diary. People are, are sort of like obsessed with filling it. And that means it cramps. So we work late hours, we go into the weekend. And I've done this probably, oh God, easily since I was an area manager. So we're talking 15 plus years, if not longer. I, I, my brain, my week is made up of 10 half days. So you can divide it however works for you. You know, some people like it's five days. Some people like 10 days, 10 half days. For other people, it's two hour chunks. It depends on however their business works. So I only really believe in booking about eight of those chunks because that then gives you carryover time. It allows things to breathe. In fact, at the moment, I say I actually only book six. I have six booked max. Allow myself to get to eight and then a couple, a couple left over because that allows room to breathe. So it means that if something comes in, because we book stuff out way in advance, you know, customers ask for stuff, clients ask for stuff, and we don't allow for things to go wrong. Or we don't allow for things to take longer than we thought because we're super optimistic on how long time is. Yeah. You know, we, I don't know about you, but I'll look at a list and go, oh, I'll get all of that done in a day. <laughs> yeah, that's on the fictional planet where the day is like 37 hours long. That's never going to happen in, you know, a month of Sundays, literally. So everyone does this, they fall into it. And we don't use those really simple hacks about, how can I value my time and actually booking time in our diary for us, for thinking yeah. time, for, you know, when I want to work on something. And people don't do that because they don't see themselves as important. They see other people yeah. as important. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think if part of your longer term goal isn't just to achieve X, but it's to, uh, you know, one of my goals is, is to maintain a balance. And, and that's like an ongoing thing. So I want to make sure that I am spending time with, with the family, with my wife. We go out and do something every day. We spend an hour or so together. Uh, like you say, I want to go do some exercise. So I make sure I go out and walk or run each day. Um, and if you built that into your day, then you are valuing those activities on, on a par with uh, the work stuff. So there's the work stuff going off, which needs to happen. And then there's the quality of your well-being, <laughs> mentally and physically, um, you know, and I make time for reading. You know, I love reading. I read every day, uh, and, and I love curling up with my book for an hour or so. <laughs> uh, and whether that's fiction or, or non-fiction, um, is that's part of you feeding yourself, I think, and developing. As well. And then, like you now, I mean, I think having these conversations, making sure that you do that regularly, that you speak to people who you care about, who are going to be, um, you're going to have a, a good quality conversation because that, that helps you to, to grow as well. Um, so it's about the balance for me. So absolutely, I know through that work-life balance has been really important to me. So I know through lockdown, I ended up doing the morning dog runs. So my day shifted. So instead of getting up and sort of being out on site and having to be in the car for half six and being at a client for nine, and I know you used to do those really early runs as well, you know, on the train at 6 a.m. in the morning to get into London. Um, I wasn't sitting down till 10 o'clock. I'm still not sitting down to 10 o'clock. I got really annoyed the other day. I had to do a nine o'clock start. It was like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do 
45 minute dog walk and half an hour yoga because actually that's been the really nice piece is having that time you know about getting up and going I'm going to do half an hour of exercise every day and it isn't necessarily a run I've got more yoga practice in and have managed to embed that routine in the last six months and it's been fantastic and I absolutely agree reading you know just finding those bits of what do I enjoy doing yeah. because the balance is so important I think you're right. I think what's come out of the lockdown, especially, I, I, I was having a, doing a session yesterday with a client who they, they're going to a more remote working way and they're embracing it more positively now. Um, and I said to them that the, the, the danger can be to try and insist that people did what they do in the workplace to do the same thing at home. Um, and I think what we need to do is instead of looking at time as being from nine to five is work time, or that you must do eight hours a day every day. Let's not judge it by how much time you switched on or switched off. Let's do it by what tasks or activities need to be done, what projects people are working on. Set them quality measures on it rather than time measures. So I want you to spend eight hours on this report. No, I don't. I want you to do a report that contains these information supported by these uh, evidence, whatever it is, uh, and that it needs to be done by a certain deadline. Let's agree the deadline. And then the more we found, the more autonomy you give people, the more uh, ownership over when, how, which way they want to work it. That's brilliant. But with the autonomy must come accountability. So if you're genuinely giving people ownership of something, uh, which you need to do to yourself to, to take ownership of what you're doing, then you have to hold yourself accountable. Or like we do as coaches is hold our people accountable to the things that they said they wanted to commit to. Um, so the, the two things go hand in hand. And now probably is one of the best times ever. I know this is an awful tragedy that people have been going through. But if we don't embrace this time now to look at different ways of approaching what we do, work-wise and life-wise, um, there's, there's, there's a huge opportunity here now. Yeah. Uh, and rather than saying I'm, I'm working from this time to this time or I've worked 10 hours yesterday, don't. Stop, stop looking at it in those terms. Look at it in terms of what did you achieve uh, the quality of the work you wanted to achieve um, by by the required timescale. I think there's also a real thing about doing the bits that work for you on your sort of body clock agenda. So I know, for example, I'm not great at sitting down to try and do something complicated mid afternoon. Um, my, I'm really. I'm much better on calls. So doing the type of thing that we're doing now or running a session, I'm fine. I'm super on it, really, or really organized. If I sit down and try and write something, I nod off. I genuinely don't have the energy. Whereas bizarrely, after four o'clock, I'm quite creative. So later on in the day, I have this little spurt. So occasionally people will go, oh, you were working late. I was like, well, no, actually, I faffed around for three or four hours in the middle of the day and didn't really do anything. But I know first thing up in the morning till 11 and post four o'clock, my brain's really, I can concentrate and they're really good spurts of time. So it's thinking about using, working in sprints. Well, I think this is about self-awareness, isn't it? Yeah. What you just showed there is a level of self-awareness when you do do your best work and when you don't, rather than thinking I must be switched on at nine and, and I can shut off at five. Don't, don't do that. You know, be, be more self-aware. When do you do good quality work? And like you said, some uh, activities are better suited to you at different times. So it's just being mindful of that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's 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 recap what nuggets we have for people. 
you're gonna have to help me on this because because I think we've come up with quite a few actually we've we've gone around this topic area in, in quite a quite a holistic way but actually in a really nice way because it's, it's come up with some some great pieces I think when I when I listen back and write the show notes we'll have some really great links and some bits to be able to signpost people to so you had your three things that people need to do those three steps so remind me what they were yeah um, so in order to be really useful and not to be used Mm -hmm. uh, it's important, A, that you are very clear on what it is you stand for, what it is you have to offer, um, what, what you can provide to others. Secondly, you need to be also clear on who values that, who would appreciate that, otherwise you end up being used. And the third thing then is to understand how you engage with that potential body, whether that's your, your team members, your, your stakeholders, your clients, uh, who, who is it that you need to, to, to work with? and look at different ways of, of, of engaging with people. Um, so those are the three steps. And I think that, that I can't make it any simpler than that. That, that, that kind of works. Absolutely. <laughs> so we've got those three steps in a really holistic piece. I then got, which I think I would totally agree, and in some ways these are a little bit more from a hack, is be really, really clear what you want to achieve. Totally. Whether it be short-term or long-term, have some laser focus, really you know, narrow down the lens. So you understand what well, I think it needs to be joined up, Annabelle. I think you need to have longer term goals linked to medium term goals linked to short term goals, not the other way around. Yeah. Uh, and I think the temptation is we go from one short term goal to the next short term goal to the next short term goal without being mindful of the longer term goal. So I think if you can join them up, you're going to have a lot more clarity around what you want yeah. to do. So it's clarity of destination, big picture, to enable us to understand what the journey is to get there. Say no more. Say no as much as we need to, to be able to get what we need done. <laughs> so say no. Um, value your own time. So make sure that you see yourself as important and that your time is as valuable as other things. And I'm going to add my hack on of just don't book all of your diary out. Keep it, make it a, min, a maximum of 80%. So look, thank you for, for joining me today, Joss. I have loved this. You've taken me on a fantastic journey and give me a whole load of reading matter to go and find <laughs> it's a pleasure it's always good talking with you Amazon. you know and that's really dangerous finding me reading matter because the amazon account's been hammered um so if you're listening to this and you found it useful then please do share the episode with your teams or with a friend or colleague who might find it useful too we could only grow our listenership by you telling more people about it and thank you to those of you who have listened to the episode so far so I would also signpost, we've talked about things around purpose and about being useful. So I think we've looked about purpose and values early on in episodes two and three. And we've also talked about reflection and resilience and they could be really useful as well. So that will allow you to explore other aspects that we've touched on today. Thanks for listening to The Being Leader. 